This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes Store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Everyone, welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm Jackie P, your host. And today I have with me um, a guest, Sharon O'Hara. And Sharon and I were just briefly talking. Um, we did a couple of the trainings of the CSAT modules together and have kind of crossed paths a couple times at symposium in different places. But I want to um, welcome her on and have her talk a little bit, introduce herself, and tell us a little bit about what she does. Well, hi. Hi. So I'm Sharon O'Hara. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. And I have a couple of certifications. Uh, one of them is I'm a CSAT, Certified Sex Addiction Therapist. And I'm also a certified sex offender uh, treatment provider in the state of California. So I got that special training because I was working with a lot of people who are porn addicts, and then a number of them crossed over into illegal behaviors, and I was no longer able to treat them. So I went and got that extra training um, five or six years ago. And I, actually, I see quite a number of, of those folks uh, these days. Um, so I used to be the clinical director at a place called SRI, Sexual Recovery Institute, uh, that was started by Rob Weiss, who, you know, does a lot of uh, trainings and, and he speaks a lot, writes books. Mm -hmm. But um, anyway, so uh, that's my background. Great. And oh, I should add, I okay. currently have a private practice in Beverly Hills and in Torrance. I have two offices, one in Beverly Hills and one in Torrance, California. Okay, nice. And Sharon responded when I sent out a request um, on the CSAT listserv for people who were willing to come on the show and talk about narcissism, talk about gaslighting, talk about antisocial personality disorder. So Sharon was one who said, I'm happy to come on and talk about this. Yes. So um, tell me, let's start with you telling me a little bit about how you became aware of or introduced to this topic or interested in this topic. Well, um, I married somebody <laughs> who I think fell into this category. Okay. Not once, but twice. Oh, okay. I married this person twice, 25 years apart. So uh, how's that uh, for firsthand information? What I was became, you know, there's, a, I, what I'm really interested in is there's a whole, um, what's the word that just went out of my mind? Um, like From spectrum or continuum? Continuum. Okay. Yes. That's exactly, that's exactly the word that I wanted. Um, there's, there's sort of self-centered, and, and then it goes to, you know, you can get to uh, entitled and narcissistic, and you can go all the way over to, you know, psycho, sociopath, psychopath. Right. And Which is the um, antisocial personality disorder. That's the that's the diagnosis right. we would look at, but the lay term would be sociopath, psychopath. Right. And I and I do think um, one of the things that is a pet peeve of mine, and it's it's that the term antisocial has right. been misused so much by so many people because the word looks like it means antisocial, meaning I'm a loner. I right. just don't like to go out and be with other people. And the way we're using the term in psychology, the term is, is an equivalent to criminal. Right. So a person who's antisocial might be, like to be with people so that he can or she can con them. Right. So, so, so antisocial really against, means con artist. Yeah, it's against kind of the societal norms that keeps us functioning as we live together in a society. And right. so they in, are anti that, they're against that, not just right. so, in their own time. Right, and they talk in psychology about uh, pro-social. Pro-social means willing to follow the rules, willing to be law-abiding. Mm -hmm. Pro-social means law-abiding. Anti-social means, oh, the rules are for other people. Right, yes, they're above the rules, or they use the rules to get what they want. Exactly. So there's a lot of entitlement and using and, and things like that. So, uh, you know, I, I also, I initially, when I was working... Um, with in the field of sex addiction on the early days, which was way back in the 1990s. Uh, I first uh, started working seriously full-time with sex addicts in 1992. So we're talking about now 27 years. And I noticed a small percentage, not all of them, but a small percentage, I would see the wives and the spouses of, of the sex addicts sometimes, you know, 
when a person gets better from sex addiction, um, almost anybody who has any addiction, let me say this, anybody who has any addiction tends to be selfish. Right. right? Yes. And so there's, uh, there's a lot of self-centeredness and everything. And, and it's like, I have to get my addict fix, whatever it is. You know, and whether and it's they hurt other people in that process of being self-centered. They're right. not a good person to be in a relationship with. Right. But if the addict gets into recovery, um, then somewhere, I don't know, somewhere between a few weeks to a few months, um, they become a lot less narcissistic. In other words, maybe they weren't really a true um, narcissist. Um, it was just really the addiction that was... Mm-hmm that had them in the grip, so to speak. And so they're able to get better and they're able to then grow in their ability to, for example, feel compassion and empathy for other people because a lack of compassion and empathy is one of the hallmarks of a a sociopath, narcissistic, et cetera. Yeah. So I think that's a, that's something to remember when, when you're in the throes of your addiction, you tend to be extremely self-centered. But it, if it, it can clear up. Now, if after, I don't know, a year or so, the person is still, you catch them in lies, they lie when they don't have to lie, um, they're still conning in various kinds of ways, then you may be, have this kind of, you know, be facing somebody who has this kind of disorder. Because people who are truly sociopathic, people who are tr- really are nar- narcissistic, I just haven't seen, then you have to get out. Right. Because, you know, a lot of us have this idea that we're going to understand somebody into recovery. We're going to love them into recovery or something. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the best books that I think can help with this is this book that has this strange title, Women Who Love Psychopaths. Oh, okay. By Sandra L. Brown. And uh, <laughs> I have to tell you, I thought that would be a book for these kind of crazy women who develop some kind of attachment to like serial killers in prison. You know, you hear about people who then marry somebody who's in prison for life and who murdered all kinds of people. I thought it was going to be about that. No, it wasn't. (laughs) This was a book about me. (laughs) I hate to admit that. Get too close to home. But it's true. And um, I thought I'd... I'd say something about the other people. Oh, here we go. Here are the uh, traits and temperament of, for women who love psychopaths, including their, their most likely occupations. Okay. So the women who love psychopaths um, are generally extroverts, extroverts. They tend, um, they're often gregarious and, and um, self-confident. Okay. Okay, most are highly educated or have done well in their own line of work, they tend to be attorneys, doctors, therapists or social workers, female clergy, nurses or other medical professionals, teachers or professors, editors, CEOs of company, and nonprofit agency directors. How do you like them apples? Yeah, so what is it about that um, profile of females that attracts psychopaths to that type of woman? It's this idea of being addicted to being a helper. Oh, okay. So more that she would be attracted to him. Yes. Than- it's not even necessarily have to be addicted to, but you basically have this belief that everybody can recover with therapy. Okay. Kind of thing. And uh-huh. it turns out this just isn't true. Yes. <laughs> well, and, and we know as therapists, right, that especially with some um, sociopathy and psychopathy, they really are kind of treatment adverse, right? It just makes them better at manipulating. Right. Because, uh, and by the way, women can be, um, sociopaths and manipulators also. So I kind of going, you know, I've been talking more about male sex addicts and women who have to cope with them, but I have seen the opposite. Yes. I have seen uh, my practice. Right. And there could be, um, you know, there can be, with women, my experience has been it's almost always around financial things, you know, being some kind of a con artist, how can I get somebody else to always take care of me and be the victim? And uh, there's a lot of dishonesty and uh, uh, things like that. 
Yeah. Okay. And and I think let's talk about for a minute because oftentimes with these um, folks, they you talked to, like you mentioned, you thought the book was about serial killers, and there's also this category of like nonviolent psychopaths, right? And nonviolent social. Most are. Yeah, and it's so very very small serial killer, that kind of criminal person. But there's right. a whole pool of them that are nonviolent, you know, and some of them right. still may be criminal where they may right. be or conning people financially or different things like that, but they're not right. necessarily violent. Oh, yeah, that's very, very common. And by the way, the other thing I like about this book of Women Who Love Psych Psychopaths is the subtitle. Okay, what the is it? The subtitle says, Inside the Relationships of Inevitable Harm with Psychopaths, Sociopaths, and Narcissists. Mm. It's the concept of inevitable harm. Right. You know, and I think, if, for example, in my own case, um, because uh, these kinds of uh, narcissists can be very charming, you know, they can be very charming. And they also, when they are interested in you or they see you as somebody who's going to respond to them, they tend to do something called love bombing. Okay, so tell us about love bombing. So love bombing is when things go very fast. They court you and they, they uh, want to see you all the time. They uh, tell you all kinds of loving words. They, uh, they buy you stuff, typically. And, uh, and, but they also can be, they, they want to kind of own you in a sense. Mm. Um, and that's in the beginning stages. And then there's a period of time where all of a sudden they withdraw more, et cetera, because they've done the love bombing. Uh -huh. And because that feels so kind of thrilling, <laughs> you know, you get, as a person, it's like, oh, I want that back, or what do I have to do to get that back? And then you start to try to please them in all kinds of ways. Well, and especially I find with some of the partners of these men, particularly, that I've worked with, where they are somewhat confident in themselves, they do have education, they are maybe successful in their, in their chosen careers, they find that a lot of men that they date are intimidated by them. So uh -huh. sometimes the person who's love-bombing them, he doesn't seem intimidated. He seems head over heels for her, right? Right. feel really intoxicating for her. Yeah. All of a sudden, she's sucked into... Right. Right. It's very intoxicating. Yeah. And... Um... I'll say another thing, just personally, something else I've noticed, like, is this person, you know, in this category or not? Another really good sign to me of uh, being with somebody who is this kind of a narcissist, so -so sociopath, is their inability to care for you when you're sick. So that would be a good, like, indicator, but you may be dating them for a long time before you're sick, right? Right, but then they just kind of, they can't like be with you um, when you're really feeling bad or ill or something like this. Now, they might send you a present or flowers from afar, okay. <laughs> you know, to kind of fake empathy. Yeah, they'll have but, a gift show uh, up to be there for you. Right, they tend not to want to, you know, actually be with you because they don't, they really seem to be missing the empathy chip. Okay. They're missing a chip. Yes. And that's, that's the thing about why, because I can't tell you how many people have told me, yeah, but what can I do? There must be something we can do about this because we're Americans and we believe everything can be fixed. And the idea that the way you fix this is you get the heck out of there, that's not something that we like to hear. No, it's not. We, we, that, we have a hard time accepting that. So what other red flags would you say like that you could see maybe early on in the relationship? You talked about like if you're sick or having a bad day or maybe had something emotional happen that they won't necessarily sit with you or actually be able to show up and empathize. Are there other red flags? Well, of course, there's the famous gaslighting. Okay, let's talk about gaslighting. What's your yeah, definition? And gaslighting is, uh, I, I actually saw the movie 1944 called Gaslight that the term okay. comes from. So, because uh, people are like, why is it called gaslighting? Um, and that was about a guy who, gaslighting is when um, your partner can convince you that what you see with your own eyes, you didn't really see with your own eyes. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so give me an example of what that might sound like. You, you know, it could be as literal as you catch somebody in bed with somebody and they say, oh, no, that person was never here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Be that bald. 
you know, in the movie, it was, uh, I think the guy went to great lengths to make it, you know, have her doubt her mind. And I think there was something to drink poisonous or whatever. So it was this whole idea of playing with your brain and making you doubt your own sense of reality. Right. Okay. Fundamentally, it's all about turning it around. So it's about you. So when you try to confront somebody and say, hey, you said this, but then you did this, you know, or I saw such and such on your cell phone. Right. You know, and yes, sometimes we can make mistakes. So, you know, it's always on a continuum. Um, but especially if you do this a number of times or, you know, you have very good evidence, the, the gaslighter <laughs> will uh, always find some way to turn it back on you and make you wrong. You're right. overreacting. You don't see the reality. You're crazy. Uh-huh. So that's, that's gaslighting. I had a client once who um, was talking about how she had gone to like the mall and seen her husband with another woman uh-huh. and confronted him on it. And, uh-huh. she's like, and all of a sudden we were talking about my spending money. <laughs> yeah. And I ended up apologizing for oh, spending money inappropriately. And right. like, it wasn't until she got in my office that she was like, wait a minute, this started out about me seeing him with another woman. And it ended up with me apologizing and taking ownership and saying, I'll do better when it comes to money. Yes. Uh, that's a really good one. Th- that reminds me, there's something about languaging okay. and um, narcissists and, and sociopaths. It's the abuse of semantics. This is, again, according to the uh, women who, like psych- who love psychopaths. And so it's um, word twisting. So here are some examples of this, okay? Okay. This is, when you're talking to the person, the person will not answer questions. Mm. They will answer with something else unrelated. That speaks to the example you just gave. They will redirect the question to her. They will twist one word in the sentence into a fight. Just one word. Like you said, this word, this word isn't the right word, or you're using it wrong, or da-da-da, or it's not defined that way, or reference other dis, uh, discussions, use phrases that distract her so she has to ask him to clarify, thus getting off the original discussion, using the gaslighting, that's the what you actually saw was not what you actually saw, is what the person will say. And he will project his behavior onto her. Like anybody, for example, if you are not cheating and uh, you go off to the store or this or that, if you're with this kind of a narcissist, they will always accuse you of cheating. That's projection. So when somebody accuses you, you uh, unfairly of cheating, in my experience, often that person has that problem. That's the projection. Yes. They might use a word to express an idea, but the normal use of that word expresses something else. I thought these were really interesting ways of thinking about language. Right. You know, that's too, I will tell um, clients, if you find this kind of goes along with language that they're both complimenting you and degrading you in the same sentence. Yeah, that can also, that can also that happen. That way of language, which you're just not sure what to do with that, right? Because there is the compliment, but yeah. then there is the degrading part. And so it feels off to the person, and it is, but if they start to explore it, there comes the gaslighting. Yeah. And by the way, in terms of sort of defining, you know, who we're talking about, uh, here's another little thing. There is something called three inabilities. Okay. Okay, because I like things that are like little short checklists. Yes. And so one of them is the inability to grow to any authentic emotional and and spiritual depth. Like they might go to church or they might express things about something, but it's on a kind of a superficial level. Then there's the inability to sustain positive change. And the person might, you know, apologize. Well, actually, people who tend to be narcissistic rarely apologize. I take that back. But if they did, it's like, uh, um, yeah, or I'll stop. Oh, huh. Uh, you know, they might agree with, okay, you know, I'll change. But there's no real change. It's just they want to placate you. Or the inability to develop insight. This is a big one about how their negative behavior negatively impacts you. 
they don't seem to have much ability to have any insight about how it does. It goes along with that. I, it's basically the empathy thing. But they cannot see how their negative behavior impacts you. And, and so they often or anybody else. play the victim. Yeah. When they're being confronted, they can't see how their behavior may have impacted you in a negative way because they're going to always outlast you in that victim chair. Right. Yeah, so that's the deal. I actually went and I did the um, the hair training on, on so, uh, psychopathy, uh -huh. a guy named Hare, H-A-R-E. So I went and did that a couple of years ago because I'm working now a lot with um, sex offenders. And so I thought, okay, maybe this could be very useful, you know, with them. Now, I have to tell you something weird happened which is, it turns out that, um, and I don't have hard data on this, I only have my own experience, but interestingly to me, I found more of these um, narcissistic sociopaths amongst what I would call sex addict population than the sex offenders. Oh, really? Yes. Uh, isn't that bizarre? <laughs> yes. So what did you find maybe more diagnostically among sex offenders? And then let's talk about what the sex addict. First of all, the word sex offender just means that you broke a, you know, a law that had sexual something in it. Right. But um, by and large nowadays, most sex offenders, the vast majority of sex people who are actually arrested for a sexual offense these days, it's uh, child porn. It's viewing child porn. So it's not even touch. Okay. So hands off. It's hands off. Right. Um, sometimes there's also people who expose or whatever they would actually have some kind of victim, but the kinds of 90% um, of my clients are child porn only, no, you know, no specific victim. Okay. Um, but they're all called sex offenders and they all have to register as a sex offender for a lifetime in California. They've passed a tiering bill now, tier one, tier two, tier three, where they'll, they'll have you have to register for 10 years, 20 years, lifetime. But as of this moment, it's still lifetime. Okay. So, you know, it's, and, and I actually think that's overkill. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there should be consequences, but, you know, lifetime consequences seems a lot for looking at pictures to me. So I just thought it was really interesting. The people who are more of the psychopath variety, uh, here's the weird thing. As a society, we tend to, um, we tend to reward, you know, people who have a lot of narcissism. I mean, sometimes we elect them president. So uh, there's this whole idea of, of uh, sometimes we just want to believe what we want to believe. You know, I myself, as I said, I got involved with somebody like this and, and I really believe that they, they learned how to fake recovery. And, and I just wanted them, I wanted the love bombing <laughs> and uh, which uh, was there for a short while and then never came back. So, you know, I found out that, that what I would call the kinds of sex addicts who are very successful, like the kinds who are CEOs of, of uh, companies that kind of make a lot of money, um, often then have a fair amount of entitlement. And so, um, and then they just, you know, they just lie a lot. Yeah. And I was reading an article once that, and the, the author, I can't remember who had written it, but they were talking about how their belief was that a lot of, here in America, that a lot of our companies, our government, um, a lot of the powerful things that make up the United States are run by some continuum, right? Narcissism, sociopathy, psychopathy, yeah. and that they are so successful. And part of what makes them successful is they will do things that other people wouldn't do. Right. Their conscience may say that rule applies to me or I can't do that. That's not appropriate. Whereas these others will climb the ladder or move into these positions of power simply because they will do those things. That's true because, um, you know, they know how to play the system. And as a society, we tend to reward these kinds of folks. Yeah. And they don't have a lot of shame about that. They have no shame about that. Yeah, I don't think they're really capable of truly feeling shame. I don't think so. So it's always just how can I, uh, you know, how can I fake some kind of empathy? So they tend to really watch 
other people a lot so that they know how I'm supposed to be kind of acting. Uh-huh. But um, they rarely accept responsibility for uh, misdeeds. And, and they tend to have some kind of, you know, sense, some kind of grandiosity. Uh, and, but at the same time, be impulsive or, you know, um, poor, what they say, poor behavioral controls. Another great example of put a couple of, like, I see it, I want it, I, you know, I'll go after it. A kind of a, another checklist, if you will, of these kinds of folks. Um, fails to follow laws or rules, um, tends to be unethical, unlawful and immoral behavior, deceitful, lies, cons for fun and profit. That's one thing, lying for fun. Impulsive. Just to get out of that or to send somebody, just to maybe show how much power they can have or what they can do to another person. You know what came to mind? And, you know, I'm not diagnosing our president, I want to say that. Right. But uh, I do think it's interesting that recently he started talking about his father, saying that his father was born in Germany, and his father was actually born in the United States. And so people on some of these late night talk shows are having fun with that. You know, look at Trump. He's just lying about stuff that doesn't matter. Right. And so they're making fun of that. But the guy who helped him to write the art of the deal, Uh who spent a lot of time with him, he said, no, you have to understand something about Trump. Trump lies for fun because he thinks it's fun. And that just stuck in my mind when I was reading this list. Right. Because um, it's like, because I, I can, or it just feels right to this situation. Mm-hmm. You know, it fits what I'm saying. Right. And I don't care that you're going to tell me it's, you know, it's really an interesting way that your brain works. So well, if, they don't care that it's not true, right? Because if they're called out on that, that's where the gaslighting comes in. Right. So this is a person who who when they want something, they take the thing. You know, mm-hmm. wants it, takes it. Uh-huh. Sees it, does it. <laughs> Disregard for the safety of others, put others at risk. You know, for example, with uh, various kinds of possible sexual transmitted diseases. Mm-hmm. It says here, irresponsible and bad with supporting others. You know, that's the thing about can't be there when you're sick often. Right, right lack of remorse, they rationalize stealing and lying, and they pretend to be wonderful, helpful, supportive, you know, and uh, will say, I'm being this without kind of really being this. Mm -hmm. And basically, I think the real problem when you're in a relationship with a person like this is that, I have to say it this way, it's it's like a mind fuck. Okay. (laughs) You know? It so plays with your brain. So I use that phrase on purpose. Because it just, it, because you really doubt your own reality. Yeah. Well, and that's I why think, it's hard to recover from. Yes. Well, and I'll, I'll say oftentimes, right, they get into a relationship with somebody who has what I call pro-relational skills. Yes. So being able to say, well, I'm not always right, and I could make a mistake, or I could misunderstand, all of those things are pro-relational. Right. And those will be exploited and used against you and make you crazy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that was why I really like that book, because it, it goes into that in great detail. And, uh, and that's why I think being in the helping, helping professions, we are, number one, at risk ourselves personally to be in relationship with folks like this. Mm-hmm. And secondly, uh, as, as a therapist, we will probably spend a lot more time trying to help them where it's really, I mean, you remember this um, series of Sopranos and there was a therapist in the Sopranos and the the therapist in in Sopranos was one of the very very few therapists on television ever who actually seemed to be a real therapist. I mean, whoever wrote that, you know what I mean? It actually, because the kind of therapists they have on television, you know, Right. Sleeping with their clients and doing all kinds of things. Anyway, but there was a point at which this particular therapist who was treating Tony Soprano, who was the head of a crime family, where she realized that he, she was successful in helping him to have fewer panic symptoms because he came to her with panic symptoms. Mm. 
And then at some point, because she was in her own therapy, uh, she realized that she was helping him to be a better sociopath because if he felt he, he no longer had panic sy symptoms, then he could just go ahead killing all kinds of people and running his crime family. Right. You know, and he didn't, uh, he wasn't even having any consequences, not even these panic symptoms that he was having before. Yeah. So I just thought that was a really interesting plot yeah. line. I have had clients before who will come in, you know, and, and maybe they've hurt their spouse and through their behaviors, right? And they're talking to me about how they're feeling and they don't want to feel that way. Yeah. So they want me to do something about it. And often what I will say is that's very decent of you to feel that way. Yes. You, you need to hold on to that. I'm glad that you're feeling that because if you weren't, that's a whole different problem and I can't help you with that. Exactly. Yeah, there's a lot about this whole ability to feel remorse. I mean, uh, or to have compassion for people, et cetera, et cetera. So let's talk about for a minute maybe some of the origins, because I think it can get confusing. And we've talked about how this is kind of a continuum. Do all narcissists become sociopathic? Is there a difference? Um, what's the origin? Like, why is somebody sociopathic or narcissistic? Yeah. Well, there's this sort of, um, you know, nature versus nurture idea. I, you know, I don't know. I think the jury is out on that. Um, I think also sometimes why questions are not the best questions. Okay. Because why is something we, then we have this idea if we could figure out why, then we could fix it. Fix it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's getting off track. It took me years and years to get to this. It's, I think more important, the more important question is how, like, how is this showing up? You know, how is this behavior showing up? I do think there's something about, you know, narcissism can run in families, but sometimes it can also be, okay, I'm the child of a narcissist and I'm just, you know, there are books written about being a child of a narcissist and how that sort of is uh, very debilitating. You know, because you, again, you tend to doubt your sense of reality and you're always made to be wrong, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so sometimes you can be a child of a narcissist and you're the opposite. And sometimes though there are people within a family who they are the same thing. I mean, I think the same thing can happen with somebody who's alcoholic or not alcoholic. Alcoholism in right. families. But, um, you know, sometimes you get an idea of I'm never going to take a drink. You know, I had... I had too much. Yeah, I don't know if it's like... So, you know, from a very early age, there's, there's, there's some kind of some, you know, people tell me that uh, there's always, you know, I haven't worked so much with any kind of a, of a sociopath or psychopath who has insight into their own behavior. Uh -huh. <laughs> Mostly my experience of these folks has been that they don't see anything wrong with themselves, so they don't feel anything needs to change. They're just right. interested in, in how they can you know, manipulate you into doing what's in their best self-interest. Even though they may, like when confronted, right? Again, this is where you were saying, they may use the words and say, yes, I, I need to change, or I can see that that's bad, and I feel really awful about that. But yeah. behind that, there's no intention to change. Right. There's not that insight or that emotional connection to what they're doing and the consequences of their behavior on other people. Very true. But they'll say the words to right. manipulate you and get you to back off. Exactly. Very well said. So now, I, you know, we always get the reason that most of us got into the field of psychology is we're working on ourselves. Right. There's always something. There's either somebody you understand, your parents or yourself, or, you know, why am I this way? Or why is so-and-so this way? Or why was my ex-husband this way? You know, so that's why I think um, we're particularly in a strange kind of way. The more you know about this doesn't necessarily mean that you can handle it any better than other people. You know, yeah. I do want to say that. Uh, in fact, this whole idea of you're more vulnerable if you're in a, in a helping profession, that was news to me. Mm -hmm. So that's the essential thing I'm kind of putting out there today. Yeah, yeah. Which is, which is a good point that, and I think for women particularly, I mean, I think women, whether it's socialized, and that's why we are this way, but we tend to be more of the helpers. Yes. Um, and so in that way, we are more vulnerable. Right. So then the focus was less on, um, 
you know, why is a psychopath the way that the psycho, why is a sociopath the way that they are? Um, historically, somebody who's a true criminal psychopath, they, they, what I know of, um, of studying these folks, and that was mostly in the, in the, um, in the hair training, uh-huh. is that they tend to be that from a very, very early age. So you get those things like, uh, you know, torturing animals uh-huh. kind of thing at a young age with this idea of just kind of like, how does that work? With this total see that. Right. And the fact that, you know, whatever kind of animal is is suffering does not have any impact. Right. You know, that that would be that would be an early sign. But as to as to, you know, why, I, I can only say there seems to be like a chip missing. You know, that's the way I think of it. Yeah, I think that's some of the latest stuff that I've read as well, particularly with sociopathy and um, psychopathy is that there's a part of the brain that their thinking just didn't quite develop. Right. And now there is, it is true develop. that if you grow up in a family that is a criminal family, you know, and, uh, and this is the way everybody acts, um, or this is, this is the norm, you know, you can have um, psychopathy be kind of normed, you know, this is what we do in our family is we, right. you know, we con people or whatever. It's just kind of what we do. I mean, you know, so you can have, you can have that kind of thing. Yeah. I've also read that depending on the culture, right? That like sociopathy, psychopathy happens in a certain percentage of the population. And that's true regardless of country or um, culture. However, the culture can impact the expression of it. Right. So in some of the cultures that are much more like, group mentality, right? That we sacrifice for the good of the whole. Um, Uh Some of those countries like um, Asian countries or like India, some of those countries that really maybe overemphasize the group think versus America, which probably tends to overemphasize the individual. Yeah. That how that sociopathy, psychopathy is expressed um, in an individualistic society, it's going to be more aggressive and more more rewarded. Yeah. More rewarded. Yeah. And so they're going to cross further lines, right? Because it's tolerated and accepted. Probably or likely. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We had some great discussion just about this. Um, Anything else you want to add or any additional resources? You've talked about the women who love psychopaths book, any other good resources? Uh, Well, here's another one I happen to have called almost a psychopath. Um, it says, do I, or does someone I know, I can't imagine, you know, I thought that was kind of a weird subtitle. The subtitle here is, do I, or does someone I know have a problem with manipulation and lack of empathy? Almost a psychopath. So that's the title of this book. It's kind of a subclinical definition of not totally psychopath, but almost. Okay. Uh, I think they might be splitting hairs here. If you, if you took this subtitle, do I have a problem with manipulation? Nobody who has a problem with manipulation and lack of empathy would be reading this book. Right. The people who are manipulating don't have a problem with their manipulation. Right. Or wouldn't their way to read a book about, oh, am I being manipulated? You know, so that just struck me as funny. It's kind of what we'll talk about sometimes that, you know, the narcissist rarely seeks out treatment or therapy, but everybody in the narcissist's life is in therapy. Right. That very, very good point. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they're keep on trying to figure out that person or, um, you know, with this idea of, and this is why I think I shy away from the idea of putting a lot of emphasis on what caused this, because it tends to encourage the idea that if we just find out the cause, we can fix it. And I keep right. coming back to that because we have such an ingrained notion that people can be helped and they can change. Yeah. You know, and and that's something I would probably say kind of leaving that to the scientists maybe and who are studying the brain. Um, Because in the meantime, while maybe people are figuring out how to fix that, if that's even possible. Well, see, that's the thing. Their life need to get out. Right. They need to leave that question of can this be fixed to somebody else in a lab or whatever, wherever they're doing their research. Right. And in the meantime, they need to get out so they can live their life. Yes, I don't even have that little bit of, uh, you know, leave that to somebody else because I don't think it's even possible. 
And as long as you think it's possible, um, most of us who are vulnerable to people like this, we will still think I just have to find the right key in the lock to fix this. Okay, good point. Yeah. So, so and I noticed you always wanting to leave that as a, and I understand why you don't want to have any anything be, uh, you know, totally like the person is really not able to be helped. We just hate that. But you know, nobody can truly be helped who really doesn't want to. Right. And of course, we're faced with people who who might you know, pretend that they want to. Right. And, and again, it's, it's, it's tricky because we can overreact. You know, we, I, I know that there are plenty of people say, oh, you know, I was married to somebody and he cheated once. And so therefore he's a narcissistic psychopath or something right. like this. And so that's not necessarily true. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we do, you know, sometimes throw around those terms too loosely. Yes. Um, you know, there's, a, there's some seriousness to it. But on some level, right, just, just because somebody can be self-centered, all of us can be self-centered. Right. Like all of us want what we want. Right. Um, but these go to a different extreme that becomes very dangerous and very damaging, and they don't have that insight or even the motivation to do anything different. Yes, this is true. And a lot of them, as I said before, you, they, they tend to be pretty successful in our culture that rewards um, a certain certain brands of sociopathy, especially, yeah, so very successful people in business. I think, you know, there's a lot of research saying that there are a lot of these narcissists in that group of people. Mm-hmm. Kind of running the show. I was going to say, uh, yeah, so I just thought the concept of almost a psychopath was an interesting one, and that's that book, and The Women Who Love Psychopaths. And, uh, and to me, it's more, okay, understanding this phenomenon and finding some way, uh, it, it's like finding some way to minimize the harm that would come to you or your loved ones who run into folks like this. Rather than trying to understand the origins, it's more like, let me see if I can grow my ability to recognize this and then develop strategies for, like, for example, let's say you work for a boss who's like this. Mm-hmm. You know, how do I, how can I take care of myself? Um, short of having to just move because maybe uh, like other things about my job or whatever, I have to be aware of how that person is not likely to choose. And if my goal is just pleasing them, you know, you can do this forever and it's never really going to have an effect on them. Right. You know, so. Never kind of cross that threshold. Right. These are people who they, they want total loyalty and trust from you but they're not willing to give it. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not trustworthy themselves. Right. You know? And I think it's one of those, I'm all about increasing like people's social intelligence. Yes. Right? Because I think so often part of the success of narcissists or sociopaths or psychopaths is that we don't spot them. And we, right. but if we do spot it, we don't know what that means. Right. And I was raised on forgiveness and all this other kind of stuff, and became overly forgiving. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and we even can use terms, and I've heard these used with some people, like, they're just ruthless. Uh-huh. Almost like in an admirable way. Right. And the other thing is, is, um, is you just don't expect somebody charming. You know, I'm thinking even, here's an odd thing. Um, somebody, somewhere I read some, something that... Um, there's such a thing as female porn, right? Uh-huh. And female porn tends to be books. Right, days. And so I think it's interesting that the elements in female porn, um, nowadays it runs to billionaires. So it turns out millionaires is not enough anymore. And so uh, evidently they, there was this article all about how uh, in women's porn, now it's the billionaire and the secretary, the billionaire and the such and such, and you know, re- you know, reforming the billionaire or whatever, because it's this idea that some ordinary person, I mean, that was why Fifty Shades was so successful. It's because you had this kind of nothing person who really didn't have a whole lot to recommend her, who was, you could project yourself on this person, who was then kind of, you know, um, snatched up, so to speak, and transformed by this billionaire guy, mm-hmm. just because just because, just because. Yeah. Kind of quality somehow that she had that only he could see or something. Right, right. 
Right. So we love this idea of being discovered, you know. Uh-huh. In fact, the vampire novels were the same kind of idea, you know. Right. I'm thinking of, uh, what was that, uh, what were they called? The, the Twilight series? The Twilight series. So that whole idea was that some guy who had been a vampire for, you know, thousands of years or something, uh-huh. but always looked 17. Anyway, he would fall for this woman who was just an average teenager in the state of Washington. And uh, because somehow uh, he liked the smell of her blood, right? right. <laughs> but, but again, it was this idea of this kind of ordinary person was all of a sudden incredibly important. And because of, you know, her love, he was transformed. See, remember, he was transformed. He would do anything for her. And so as women, we, you know, our biggest fantasy is that because of us, because of our love, that person is going to heal. That person is going to change. That person is going to, see, we're going to be so important to that person that they're going to transform. And I want to tell you, that is one of the strongest addictions there is. And it is emphasized in our culture through our, you know, through soap operas, through uh-huh. uh, romance novels. I mean, just basic romance novels are basically porn for women. Well, I, I think so yeah. often, right, in, in patriarchal structures, I mean, that's, that's the kind of porn women can have, right? Because in a patriarchal structure, women aren't going to actually have the power, right? right. So their right. best hope is to find a man who has so much power that falls head over heels in love with her, that he can right. leave her, right? So her access to power is still through him, not herself, right? Right. Which I think is that whole, like, if we can spot that and see the social unintelligence in those storylines. Right? Yeah, but I think it's it so much more empowering. Well, like, it's really, I think, useful if you have, if you're as a therapist, you have female clients is to say, hey, what, you know, what do you read for fun? Mm-hmm. You know, or, or let's see how much I'm... Or what uh, movies do you love, right? What, yeah, what am I... movies really speak to you? Right, what am I buying into? Because we do have a culture that really kind of pushes this line. Anyway, I just think it's really interesting. Yeah, I think it is too, yeah. I was talking to a client not that long ago and just said, we were talking about some of the movies that she loved and throughout her teen years and into adulthood... And we, I was pointing out maybe some of those scripts that aren't necessarily female positive, right? Because it keeps her in this, like, I'm just going to be taken care of. Right. And understanding how at some ages, um, especially if that's not something your family did, that that is extremely powerful, right? To right. I'm only going to get taken care of. Right. Um, but actually how disempowering it is. And I could just see in her face, like, this whole, like, like romantic notion is going to have to change. And, and she actually said, like, I'm going to have to give this up. And I said, yeah. well, I mean, that's your choice, right? But I, I think it's a wise choice to yeah. start to let go of, like, this notion of finding that man or that person who's going to make me whole and take care of me. Right. The whole kind of want to be taken. Like, I really want to be independent and have my own wishes. But... Um, it'd be nice to have a have you pay for a roof over my head or you know, whatever else. I mean, you know, I have compassion for just the humanity of that. We'd all like a safety net. And, uh, you know, the world out there has got a lot of chaos kind of built into it. So um, you can have compassion for yourself as you, as you go through this. Right. But, uh, but I do think that looking at the role that our culture has in this and then seeing how we go along with it through our choices of, of what we read, it's okay to read it for fun, but just keep telling yourself, you know, that's a fantasy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. And understand why that's a powerful fantasy for you. Yeah, because we're, we're like to be on guys, on, on the case of a lot of guys, oh, you know, you want some person th- that has this perfect body, et cetera, et cetera, and I feel bad because I don't. Well, shoot, we'd like to have some millionaire guy sweep us off a feet with our their private plane, et cetera, and not the, you know, Joe Schmo we're probably married to, be the person who might show up in your life. So we both have those kinds of things operating. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Anything you wanted to um, add before we wrap up? This has been a great discussion. <laughs> well, thank you for asking me. See, this is what's funny. Now I'm working primarily with people who get into trouble with sex offender behaviors, and I don't run into as many of these folks, which is so weird. 
Yeah. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't um, know what think. Yeah, I, I, it's, it struck me as very odd and uh, anti, you know, counterintuitive. But I think it's the thing that I would want to leave people with is this idea of being very forgiving of yourself and very, you know, opening up to maybe, you know, looking at more, can I open myself up to truth here? And, you know, educate myself more about what narcissism really is by, you know, I have actually, I, I bought about 10 or 20 of these books and uh, either sold them to people or gave them to people. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and maybe a year or two later, the spouses involved came back to me with, oh my God, that changed my life. Or, oh yeah. Yeah. So I found that as a calling there for a while. And that's when I was primarily dealing with, with sex addicts, not sex offenders. Not sex offenders. Yeah. Yeah. But the more there's, the more there's money involved and the more there's um, a lot of that kind of uh, control, then the more I think it's not, how can, see, our focus is, again, as women is tends to be, how can I learn about this sociopath so I can get that person to get the right help? Like somehow there must be the right help. And sometimes the right help is a, should be for you to get the heck out of there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think oftentimes when we're talking, you know, extreme narcissism, sociopathy, um, psychopathy, for that individual to not have power because so many people are educated and informed about what that is. Yeah. So that person really is kind of cut off from society so that they can't manipulate, so that they can't cause harm. Yeah. I'm telling you, it's very, very difficult to leave a narcissist, mm -hmm. right? It, oh, and also there's growing up the child of a narcissist, which is a whole other discussion. Right. That's also extremely difficult uh, to recover from. So another time. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you, Sharon. It's been great. I hope you have a lovely day. I hope you do too. Thanks. Thanks. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember, there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story till it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Pro of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me remember I can't do it all. Help me to take things one step at a time. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.